0: Morning, you know, I, uh, I sent Mike a, a David Bowie song, I sent him a Beatles song, I sent him a, a Bob Dylan song, and you know what he said? He goes, no can do, compadre, you know how Mike sounds, you know how he sounds, right? No can do, compadre, we've got to wait till we get back to the auditorium, I'm like, come on, and then he comes out here, and he does Leon Bridges, hey, we can't do Bowie, but we can do Leon Bridges. I'm like, I just think he's trying to show off. You know? Like, I'm up here all hot and bothered and sweaty now. I'm gonna need a shower. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, great. Um, anyway, let's try to get this back on track. Good morning. Um, so, one of my favorite parts about my role here at Storyline is uh, the weddings that Allie and I get to be, uh, get to get invited to be a part of. Um, and so next weekend I won't be able to be at the gathering because we'll be in Orlando uh, I'll be officiating a wedding for an old Young Life uh, friend of ours um, Ali's in the wedding I get to it's pretty cool it's a pretty cool thing that we get to be a part of um, but we're, we're headed to Orlando which is as far as destination weddings go it's just fine you know like it's I think that's the tagline of Orlando like it could be worse right <laughs> like, you know, I'd rather be in Jamaica. Obviously, if you're going to go to a destination wedding, you'd rather be in Jamaica, but we'll, we'll take Orlando, I guess. Um, no, we're, we're pretty we're pretty excited. We're, get, we're, we're excited to be a part of this wedding. We're excited to be a part of their day, but we're also really secretly excited. We get to go to Disney, um, and so we're, we're pretty pumped about that. We get to take Bo, uh, who's just about to turn four to Disney World. So there's been a lot of Magic anticipation around the house over the last month. We uh, we cut the last ring off the countdown calendar this morning, and once we're wrapped up here, we're uh, the naps are taken to the sky. We're going to get on a plane um, and head and head to Florida. So, with that being said, thank you so much for coming this morning, um, and let's pray and we'll we'll wrap up here. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, <laughs> kidding. I'm totally joking. Um, t- Brian Brian leaned forward and was like, "Okay, I guess we're praying." Um, <laughs> Um, no, our flight's not till later tonight because you know who doesn't love a three-year-old on a red eye, and that's just what we're gonna do. Um, I realized uh, this week that for the for the bat- past few weeks we've just been talking about going to Disney World. Um, we keep telling our friends we're headed we're headed to Disney, we're headed to Disney, and rarely do we actually mention that we're 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 going for a wedding. Like that's why we're going. We don't get to do Disney without the wedding, so I gotta keep reminding myself of that. Um, I really enjoy officiating weddings. You, you get to be part of kind of love at its first breath, you know, that moment when the spark ignites the fire, where the sun comes up over the horizon as it's rising. It's really an incredible um, a moment to, to bear witness to. And so I especially enjoy when Allie and I get invited um, into a marriage with people that we've known for a really, really long time. A lot of the weddings I've gotten to do have been with Young Life Kids. Um, and some of which we've known since they were freshmen in high school and so a lot of times we get to sit down with them for like a couple sessions before they get married and do uh, premarital counseling which it sounds way that sounds way heavier than it actually is with us because it's usually just me repeatedly asking like now are you sure (laughs) like (laughs) are you sure you know this really something you want to do no, um, but I do, I do every time we sit down, well, the, first, the first session, the first thing I ask is, now tell me what drives you nuts about them, right? Let's articulate that. What, what drives you nuts about the person that you are about to say yes to for the rest of your life? Maybe they chew their food too loud or their aunt drives you bonkers, or they're always on their phone or they talk too much about themselves or they love jazz music and you just don't get it. To be clear, these are about other marriages, not my own. Um, and it's an important question to ask, right? Uh, for many of the couples that we get to spend time with, um, sometimes this is the first thing they've articulated uh, these things out loud. And so rarely in that moment are they serious, but if they're left unsaid, if they're left unmentioned, then they can become really, really toxic because he might never stop playing video games or reading comic books or listening to Rage Against the Machine. Again, other marriages, right? <laughs> the. <laughs> The marriage covenant, it's it's this huge deal, right? You're about to share the rest of your life with someone. From that point on, you'll go together and you'll do things together in a beautiful and inescapable way. It's two different people, two different families that believe that they belong together, and so they become one new family. Over the past... Three weeks at the gathering, Mike Gathright has been using the book of Galatians to uh, compare and contrast this this idea of religion with what what he has been calling the gospel of grace. And so I'd like to spend our time together this morning kind of continuing in that same vein. Uh, When Mike and I sat down on Monday to kind of recap last week's gathering, which was super fun. There was so much energy and it was just fun. The sun was out and it was warm. It was just great to be together, and we, we talked about that a lot, but we have both walked away kind of feeling like there's more to unpack here, that we weren't quite ready to, to button it up and put a period on the end of the, the last three weeks. Um, they've really His talks the last three weeks have really blown my mind in a lot of ways, uh, and so I'd really encourage you to go back to the website or check out the podcast and uh, take in the last three weeks. Um, and I think our intention was initially to kind of wrap it up. Like I said, we wanted to finish... Uh, but there's more here for us. Um, and so if you'll bear with me, if you'll stick with me, um, there's a couple things I want to do this morning. And the first is I want to recap, like I kind of want to do a synopsis of the last three weeks, and then we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson because I can't help myself. And then um, we're going to see if any of that means anything for us. And so, so again, I'm inviting you to hang in there with me just for a little bit here. So last week, Mike laid out his theory Uh, And he claimed that the formula for faith within the context of religion means that first we behave, and then we believe, and then we belong. This is the order, this is the formula of a religion. Uh, So behave, believe, belong. And so summed up, religion asks us to prove our belief with our behavior, right? How we behave lets us believe that you believe, and when we believe that you believe, you can belong. Right, that's kind of the sequence, the order of religion. It's like a job application when they ask for like three to five years of experience for an entry level position. It's that same kind of litmus. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's that same litmus test for belonging. A personal example of this: um, one of my in one of my previous jobs, uh, it involved a certain amount of personal fundraising that came along with it. And one of and it was one of the most valuable experiences of my life. So I'm not. I don't want to talk ill about that. It was one of the most truly uh, I gained more wisdom and maturity in that role than I have in anything else in my life Um, but one there was one time where I was asking for support from a larger organization Um, and before they they could say yes to me and to my ask they required me they required me to take a fifty question oral examination of which I had to answer each one of those questions satisfactorily Um, and it, it was it's quite an experience. It's 50 questions, and I had to get all of them right. I had shorter history tests in high school, you know? Like, and so the short version of how that story ends is I aced it, um, and then I just asked him for more money. But um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I've experienced anything closer to what Mike is talking about than that, right? Like, behave correctly. Answer these questions. Prove to us that you believe. And once you do prove that, then you can belong. Right? Then we can say yes to you. Uh, so the alternative to religion, if that kind of religion, is what Mike has labeled as the gospel of grace. And so, in which, in first, you belong. That's step one. You belong. Yes, even you, and even them. We belong. Step two is you believe, and then we become. And so, summed up, it's our un- unconditional belonging. Inspires our belief, which transforms our lives into a becoming that includes freedom, love, and abundance. So, week one, Mike talked about that idea of belonging, right? So, he said, We belong with God before we believe in God because there is nothing we can do to get God on our side. That was week one. Week two, he jumped ahead to becoming, where he says, We are free to live in and live out the grace of God. When we become, that's the freedom we find. We find the freedom to live in and live out the grace of God. And then he came back to that middle step, believe, last week. And he said, we accept our acceptance by trusting that belonging, that that belonging is the best thing for us. And so now this morning, I want to take the time that we have left to zero in on that middle piece even more this bridge between belonging and becoming. So more directly, here's the question I'm asking. If believing means that we accept our acceptance, right? That we trust our belonging and its merit in our lives, how do I do that? Like practically, what does that mean? It's a, it's, it seems great an idea, it seems great in principle. I'm on board, right? But I'm gonna need a little bit more direction. I'm gonna need a little bit more clarity and what exactly that looks like. So, because um, what does it mean to accept our acceptance? It feels good to hear. It feels good to say. But what, what does it actually mean to trust our belonging? What exactly do I need to accept? So this is a scene from the movie Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a great coming of age story. Make sure you got a box of tissues with you. Um, it's really, really good. But this is a clip of Charlie, who's a young man in this in this scene. He's fallen smitten for a classmate uh, who's dating somebody else who's objectively not good. I won't, I won't spoil any more for you in that. Um, and he doesn't really understand why she would continue to choose him, why she would continue to be with him. And so here's the line his teacher, Paul Rudd's character, shares with him. He says, we accept the love we think we deserve. We accept the love we think we deserve. So let's say that that is true, right? Let's say that this principle is true in our lives. I certainly resonate with that, right? I can understand that I have autonomy over my own self-worth, that my own ego is my worst enemy and prevents me from experiencing the fullness of community and relationship. Um, that's that's destined for me. So sure, we accept the love we think we deserve. So if believing is accepting our acceptance and if we're self-limiting by accepting only the love that we think we deserve then the question this morning becomes what do we deserve and to answer that I think we've got to go back in time a little bit so this is the history lesson right we're gonna go back 2,000 years uh, to one to, to a story um, right after Jesus's death so as I mentioned earlier last week Mike has been using the book of Galatians to highlight the gospel of grace uh, within scripture over the last few weeks, and you may have noticed him reference the author over and over again. He said things like, Paul claims this, or Paul says that, and I'm sorry to say he was not talking about me. Um, I have I have not paid attention uh, to sermons more than I have in the last three weeks. Every time he says, and Paul said, my ears perk up because, you know, I, I don't want to be misquoted. Um So, anyways, this morning we're going to look at Paul's story, right? Who is he, what is he doing, and why is he doing it? Um, So, first, this Apostle Paul, as we've been referring to him, um, that's not his real name. That's not his original name. His name is actually, uh, he was originally Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus uh, traditionally believed something very different about how the world should work. So Saul was Jewish, just like Jesus, just like Jesus' disciples. Paul's heritage was Jewish. Um, And not only was he Jewish, but his role in the Jewish community at that point, he was like General Patton of Judaism, right? He had a mission, and he was going to destroy everything that was in his pathway to achieve that mission. And so we read in his letter to the Church of Philippi, he has a little autobiography of himself as Saul. He says, even though we can list what many think are impressive credentials, you know my pedigree. A legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from an elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of purity and my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, and a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. Those are Saul's words, um, and I think it should, we should be clear that Paul is not known necessarily for his humility. Um, it's not necessarily that high on the list, but um, he's, he's kind of laying out his own resume. That isn't speculation. This is, this is from the Bible. That's from, Paul, from Saul himself. And so what do, we, what do we know about Saul that isn't in the Bible? And so here, here's some of that. We know that he's about 30 years old when Jesus is crucified, right? Right. Um, this, the, the Pharisees, this ruling sect of governance, they had organized a plot with the Roman government um, to have Jesus killed by way of capital punishment. Maybe that's a story that we're familiar with. And in the book of Acts, um, which is a, kind of a history book within the scripture that talks about the early church, Luke is, Luke is quoting Paul saying that he is a Pharisee. And so although we don't really have any evidence to say that Saul was present at Jesus' crucifixion, we can certainly say that he was in favor of it that he was part of the group of people that were set out to uh, plot the murder and the execution of Jesus. Another thing we know is that Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, it's just one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what separated that tribe of Benjamin from every everyone else was their adherence to militarism, right? Is that they they were kind of made up that militant sect, that militant part of the Jewish faith, Um and they would, their goal is that, General Patton, destroy everything in our way of our mission, which at that point was deliverance from oppression, that their God would return and deliver them again. And so if we put those two things together, militarism and Pharisee, what we see is Saul was a militant defender of his faith, and he saw his duty to root out any idolatry or threat to that law of God. Um, so, uh, sorry. Sorry. He also believed in the story of deliverance, that just like God had split the Red Sea open for Moses 4,000 years earlier to deliver the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, that one day God was going to return again, and he was going to do the same for the Jews that were oppressed in Rome. So these Christians uh, that Paul was hunting, these Christians were a threat to his belief. They were a threat to his heritage At 4,000 years later of history dedicated to the belief that God would one day deliver them from oppression. And so they were in the way of his missions. You see, Christians were seen um, as a threat because they looked at life in a different way. Jesus had introduced a whole new way of living and thinking and believing. And it was such a counterintuitive paradigm to that of Saul of Tarsus. So in Judaism, one was born into it, right? It was the tribe of Israel, the chosen people of God. There was some, This was something you were literally born into. There wasn't any converting or evangelism. You were either Jewish or you were a Gentile. And Jesus taught a new way of believing, right? One that included everyone. Jesus talked about the expansion of the family of God, not limited to the 12 tribes of Israel, but one that included everyone, Jews and Gentiles from every corner of the earth. And so as a Pharisee, Saul, it's all about faith and piety. They went hand in hand. You proved your Judaism by living the right way. So you knew all the rules. It was about being the best Jewish person that there could be. And the preservation of the faith dependent on your adherence to a right set of behaviors. Are we seeing some familiar contrast here between what Mike was talking about? But the way of Jesus Day offered a new vision for God's people, one that included the unclean and broken parts. Of a community. So Saul was following in Jesus' wake, right? He was weeding out any new converts that might threaten the Jewish way of life. And in the years following Jesus' death, Paul is building up quite a reputation um, in what is now kind of modern day Israel. He was feared in every Christian circle from Turkey all the way down to Egypt. And about a year after Jesus' crucifixion, Saul is walking with a caravan. Of, um, of kind of his, of his cronies, and they've left Jerusalem. They're headed towards Damascus with a decree to kill all the Christians there. He's hunting them down. They're in the way. He's going to take care of them. And so now something crazy is about to happen. Uh, just as they reach the outskirts of the city of Damascus, Saul is blinded by a flash of light. Now, hang hang in here. I don't completely understand how this happens either. I don't understand how it works either. But this is the story as the Bible tells it. So Saul is stopped dead in his tracks and boom, a flash of light blinds him and he hears a voice speak to him. And that voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Saul responds, who are you, master? And the voice says, I am Jesus, the one you are hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city, and in the city you'll be told what to do next. His companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound but couldn't see anyone. While Saul was picking himself up off the ground, he found himself stone blind, and they had to take him by hand and lead him to Damascus, where he continued blind for three days. This is a crazy, wild moment. It may just seem like words on the page, but there's so much going on here. I can't imagine what I would think if I was Saul, right? Right? In Saul's world, Jesus was dead. They had taken care of that, right? The rumors about him rising from the dead were merely, ugh, they were rumors, right? And he had dedicated his life to shutting down those rumors, and yet here he was. Here was Jesus shocking Saul with this flash of light and a voice saying, get up, go to the city, and wait, and then blinded. It had to be incredibly disorienting. Um, at least from how I imagine it to be. Jesus isn't done here, though. Uh, After he's done freaking out and blinding Saul on his way into Damascus, he shows up unannounced in in a vision to another one of his followers. His name was Ananias, and this is what he tells him. He says to Ananias, Get up and go over to Straight Avenue and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. He has just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so he could see again. And Ananias protested. <laughs> I love this. Master, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priests that give him license to do the same to us. But Jesus said, the master said, don't argue go. I have picked him as my personal representative. And so Ananias went and found the house, placed his hands on the blind Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the master sent me, the same Jesus you saw on the way here. He sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And no soon were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them for a hearty meal. Am I the only one who thinks that this is crazy? This is a little bit wild. If the man that I was trying that was trying to kill me was just down the street, would I be willing to show up and call him brother and then invite him over for dinner? Like that's that's wild. The story continues. Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the Damascus disciples, but then went right to work, wasting no time preaching in the meeting places, that this Jesus was the Son of God. Friends, don't don't miss this. this. This is what belonging looks like. This is what belonging looks like. Jesus meets him without being invited, without being asked. Jesus meets him, and he calls him his personal representative. Just take that in. This man who made a life and a living, literally killing people who follow Jesus. Jesus himself calls this man his personal representative. And I don't know about you, but the list of people I want to represent me doesn't start with guy who wants to kill me. You know? The next person he meets, Ananias, a Gentile Christian, everything he doesn't like about the world, calls him brother. Brother calls him brother, and invites him over to have dinner with his friends. What? 20 years later, Saul will write a letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesian Christians there, and he says, long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Christ Jesus and what pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. I read that, and I wonder if while he's writing that, he's thinking about those days in Damascus, right, where he's sitting with these Damascus Christians, mind-blown, and he writes, long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family. You see, fault? excuse me, Saul found his belonging as a child of God, no longer a slave to piety and purity and fear, but transformed by goodness. This is is the kind of belonging that we're talking about, right? This This is what it means to belong before you believe. It's the kind of belonging that inspires our belief, and it's the kind of belonging that God says that we deserve. Remember, if our belief is our accepting our acceptance, and if it's true that we tend to merely accept the love that we think we deserve, then the question is not necessarily do we believe in God or it isn't what do we believe about God. The question that our belonging is asking is what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe that you deserve? Do you believe that you're worthy of grace? Do you believe that you, just as you are, are enough? You believe that just as you are, you are worth loving, and you are worth fighting for, and that you are worth dying for. 14 years after Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, he writes a letter to his friends in Galatia. He begins with this, this is Galatians chapter one, verse one. He says, I, Paul, and my companions in faith here send greetings to the Galatians church. It's subtle, it's never addressed in scripture, it's only for speculation. But you see that he changes his name. He's no longer Saul of Tarsus, but now he's Paul, Jesus' his apostle. Saul is a specifically Jewish name. The first king of Israel was named Saul. And it's no small thing to carry the name of your people's inaugural king. It would have been a, it would have been a great honor to be named Saul in that time. But translated from Hebrew to Greek, Saul becomes Paul. That's it. That's the reason why he goes by Paul. It's not because it means something special. It's not because it's necessarily significant to him. It's just a translation. By changing his name, he's communicating to the Galatians that he is one of them. To communicate to them that they belong, he adopts their name. Right? In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or and female for you are all one in Christ. In his letter to the church in Rome, he says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And then in his letter to the Ephesians again, he writes, we, this is Paul, he says, we are God's masterpiece. Oh, I love that. We are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good things he planned for us long ago. The question is not necessarily any longer, do you believe in God? It's instead, do you believe that you are worthy of being called God's masterpiece? Do you believe that? I don't know what you believe about God, but I do know what he believes about you. And he's wondering if we can believe the same thing About ourselves because he believes that you belong he's adopted you into his family and we are all one in his family he believes that you are perfectly and wonderfully made he believes that there's nothing that can separate you from his love because he's made you in his own image he believes that you are his masterpiece and he believes that you just as you are are worth dying for So belong, like it or not, this is what we got. Welcome to the family. If you've got a pulse, then you're in. Believe. What do you believe that you deserve? Do you believe that you're worthy of God's love? Do you believe that you deserve it and become? Do you believe that what is true for you, that you belong, that you are worthy of God's grace, love, And freedom. Do you believe that's true for everyone else too? I think that's the shift. That's how we transform. Paul says that we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus. We believe when we accept that is true. But then he says, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Y'all, he's got plans. He's got plans for us, and that means we've got work to do. We become, we are transformed when we see our friends and our family and our enemies just as God sees us as his masterpiece. And then we welcome them into our belonging, right? See, it's cyclical. We belong, we believe, we become belonging. Friends, may you become the belonging that you believe you deserve. May you find your place as a child of God, you just as you are, find your belonging in God's family. May you see yourself exactly as God sees you, as his masterpiece, as his engine for the stars, as worthy of bleeding and dying for. And may you become a refuge, a belonging. May you become a may you become the belonging that inspires your belief. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, friends.